Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Steve Pederuti, and you're listening to the Intellectual Medicine Podcast, the place where we use our thought process and information to guide us in how to form opinion and take action. Today, I'm going to be talking about COVID, Delta, the immunization, face masking, and we're going to draw a connection between Botox and face masking and the war in the Middle East and the immunization. We'll show you how things connect and help guide you towards a manner of thinking that can help inform decisions. You know, intellectual medicine is specifically about processing data and applying it in real time in a manner that supports our best health, which begs definition. What is health? And that is a variable depending on what we value. So it all comes down to a point of philosophy. And this is the missing element from our current raging debate about the immunization and what actions are worth taking and which are not. So this pivots on philosophy and it starts by stripping away some core facts. And unless you are ilk, unless that is you are inclined toward a rather extreme position, here are some facts. Fact number one, the viral pandemic is a real phenomenon. Its origins are not important in this moment based upon this conversation. We're going to focus on the issues at hand. I'm not going to dive into its origins and whether or not it was hatched in a lab as a particular cabal against the Western society. The fact is it's here. Look, I'm a family doc and I do functional medicine, anti-aging therapies. I am pushing boundaries of human wellness in a manner to keep us vibrant. That means the essence, the core being of my practice is somewhat theoretical and experimental. But here's the facts that we deal with every day in our world. People get old and they suffer adverse consequence and people die. The questions then turn to what can be done. So let's look at this pandemic. People have died from this virus. Irrefutable. Let's look at another fact. Some people have died from the immunization. That too is relatively irrefutable. It's uncommon. It's rare that somebody has an anaphylactic reaction leading to immediate death, but that can happen. For people to ignore that fact is to undermine credibility. Now, I'm not implying that the immunization is a terror unto society and health at large. There are some people who feel that way. I'm not one of them. But rather, we have to weigh risk versus benefit. And that requires a bigger stage. So we've established one fact that people are dying from the virus. We've established another fact. Some people are going to die from the immunization and or suffer negative consequence. Here are some other facts as well. This pandemic, this virus is likely to be with us in some way, shape or form for as long as we are alive. Coronavirus is not brand new, folks. It's been around since before you were born. It causes what we refer to as the common cold, that is, certain strains of it. It's not to imply that those strains are the same as the ones at play, but merely to reflect back the fact that it will be with us. And if we continue to culture healthy people on a random basis, we'll continue to find it. And if we continue to ascribe significance to that, as in a totally healthy person that harbors a virus, 
is an at-risk human to the rest of society, it paints us in a difficult box. And this is unprecedented, the idea that we're culturing otherwise healthy people and trying to decide public health mandates based upon that information. It would be like culturing people for Clostridium difficile. Now, C. diff is a natural inhabitant of the gastrointestinal tract. If it it grows in disproportionate numbers, it can make you sick. If it's present in a small amount, as it frequently is, you'll never know that it's there. It just exists. So a lot of what's happening in the pandemic is theoretically based. The problem some of us have is when it is framed as stone fact that is irrefutable. So let's go back to the immunization. It comes down to this if you have volition that is free will, should you get the shot or not? And that comes down to risk versus benefit. And that comes down to Afghanistan versus America. What am I talking about? In a broad sense, any one individual can take an action strictly based upon their well-being. Is it in your best interest if you're a 28-year-old healthy person to be immunized? What's your risk if you get infected? Probably not that great. What's the risk of immunization? Maybe you're not going to feel so good for a week, a few days, or maybe something worse. In all likelihood, you'll blow through the immunization like I did. Yes, I got my immunization with no problem. But it's a bigger platform. You have to ask this question. As you contemplate whether or not you or your children should be immunized, do you believe in only taking an action based upon your individual benefit? If that's your sole reflection, then it informs a decision a bit differently. Therefore, if the sole decision is what's right for my 16-year-old son, that is, what's his risk of not getting immunized versus getting immunized, it's a debatable point. The risk to a 16-year-old, my son, my 16-year-old, who's totally healthy, from getting the virus is pretty damn small. I may miss a few days of school. He'll be out of school, be sick, like the flu, the likelihood of hospitalization approaches zero, the likelihood of death approaches zero, and yet I had him immunized because there's another part of this conversation, folks. Would you do something and put yourself at some risk, albeit small, for the betterment of the country at large or mankind or your neighbor or your grandmother or your parents? Would you take that risk? Let's look at it from another perspective. I've got a thousand bucks in my wallet. Okay, I really don't, but suppose I did. Would I be better served personally, me, to spend that money on my own interests or giving it away? Society at large may benefit from me giving it away, but it'll come at a price that is a thousand dollars to me personally. Now let's go to Afghanistan. Let's go to the Middle East. Let's go to let's go to the first desert storm. Would a young American going to fight Iraq in the first desert storm be better served if he just stayed home, he or she? Is the risk greater personally to go into the war or is it better to stay at home? Obviously, it's better to stay at home if all you're looking at is your personal risk. But theoretically, by going into that war and offering the risk of possible death, Theoretically, I will make America a more secure place. My children, my grandchildren, 
the people I love will live a better life. That is, that is selflessness extended on a, on a real extreme level. I would make the same argument for those of you contemplating the immunization. There is a bit of a war going on. It's called this pandemic. Now, we can rage and we can debate about how we should react. Should we quarantine? Should we not? Let's put that aside in this moment when an immunization is available. It's right there on the shelf. And the question in the immediate term is, should you take it or not? So I had my immunization. I'm a doctor. I'm a vector. I'm exposing people every day. My responsibility, my willingness to tolerate personal risk is significantly greater by virtue of the oath I took to become a physician. We owe it to our patients. We owe it to the people we come in contact with to minimize the possibility that we will cause them harm at every level, even if there's a certain modicum of personal risk. I got the immunization. I worked the next day. I felt fine. We'll talk more in a moment about other elements of self-protection. And my children got immunized. Their risk is small. I told you that. But I believe in the sense of a communal benefit. The more people that get immunized, the better it's going to be for society at large. Whether or not it actually cuts off propagation of this virus is unknown. It's a theoretical construct. When we look at uh, the rates of penetration of the virus, it is theoretically possible that if more people get immunized, the virus will have less of a safe haven in which to mutate. It's an unproven theory, but the logic is pretty sound. And we're starting to see it play out a bit when you look at the states that have higher transmissions versus those that don't, and it correlates with the immunizations. So we have to look at that broader piece, folks. And if you choose not to get immunized, that's okay. It's free will. We're a country that values freedom. And I am not a dogmatic pro-vaxxer. In fact, I was against the mandated human papillomavirus, and I still am in the state of Rhode Island because it's not a vector that's transmitted through the air. It's different than this pandemic which can claim people regardless of their personal behaviors. An aerosolized infection is just a riskier animal. And therefore, the benefit of an immunization ticks up a notch. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Would we be willing to expose ourselves to some degree of personal risk? And I've heard the argument made, well, the immunization is experimental. Yes, yeah, so is life. So is everything that we do every day has a degree of experimental nature to it. If people are arguing that you shouldn't get immunized because of the unknown long-term risks, they're not being honest in their debate. What they're really saying is they don't believe in it, period, forever. Because long-term risk is open-ended. The measles, mumps, and rubella shot never got tested for long-term risk with regard to future reproductive impact on humans. That is, they never took a group of two-year-olds immunized them with measles, mumps, and rubella, and then assessed them over 30 years to see what their fertility rates were. It's not possible to do that study. Here's another thing you can't do. You can't take an immunization and then see what the correlation would be in 40 years with regard to dementia rates. It's impossible. There are theoretical constructs, but impossibilities to discern absolute outcome. 
So in intellectual medicine, we have to do reflective thinking and make some rational conclusions. Otherwise, we're paralyzed in inactivity. The theoretical construct of what I do every day for my patients, high-dose vitamin C, lead reduction through chelation, there's evidence supporting these pathways, but absolute proof that eludes most decisions when it comes to our own health and the health of society at large. We will never know if we would have been better off as a society to not flatten the curve, but rather let the virus just burn through everybody as fast as it could, let it take some people, people are going to die, and then hope that it goes away and that those of us that survive the wave will have some type of Darwinian advantage. We'll never know if that approach would have been better. It was a, it's a theoretical construct that wasn't put to the test, in part because we're an empathic society and we consider it a bit inhumane to willfully expose large populations. But it's not irrational. I remember when I was a kid, when somebody got chickenpox, everybody came over, hung around little Johnny so that the chickenpox would burn through the neighborhood fast. My sisters and I, we all got it within a week of one another. It came, it went, we survived. Not everybody survived chickenpox. Some people got sick and died. But nevertheless, people are going to get sick and die from viral illnesses, be it the flu, COVID. I'm not being cavalier. I'm simply balancing reflection. So when somebody tells you the immunization is safe, it's a relative statement. A better way to say that is that the immunization appears to be very low risk and that the risk-to-benefit ratio of immunizing versus waiting to get infected appears to favor being immunized. That is a more balanced way to frame this discussion. And if somebody says, I don't want to get immunized, then they're saying, in essence, my well-being supersedes that of everybody else's, other people I may be in contact with, and I'm making this decision in my own self-interest. And that's okay. After all, we live in America, and for the most part, we accept individual prerogative above mandates. Now, we're getting to a point where a mandate may be coming with regard to children in school. When the Pfizer immunization gains full approval from the FDA and gains full approval for children, it will be hard to argue against mandating immunization for kids to go to school. And here's why. Listen, I know some of you are recoiling. Yes, I'm a functional doctor, but look at the bigger picture. Suppose you're the parent of that child with diabetes, with an immunologic weakness, and you want them to go to school fully, but there's a risk because of transmission. That risk can be diminished, if not nearly obliterated, by universal immunizations. So there is a rational, reasonable argument to be made in favor of that when it comes to um, a requirement to enter school. And it has to do with protecting the weakest amongst us, not the individual benefit to any one person. It's like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Do I need a ramp to go in a building? No. Does a ramp negatively affect me? Well, sort of, because you know there's a rise in expense that trickles down to everybody. So that ramp that you put in every place, you know, I sort of got to pay for that some way. Maybe the price of my cocktail will go up at the restaurant. I don't know. 
And yet I like the idea that there are ramps. I like the idea that people in wheelchairs have better access. That's a broader view, one that I support, one that I hope you all will consider embracing as you continue to contemplate the risk benefit. So in summary, folks, the bare facts are people are dying from the virus. The rate of death from the virus goes down the more people get immunized. And yes, some people will die upon being immunized. We believe that that number will be much smaller than the number of people natively infected from the virus. And I've borne witness to that in my own practice. I've not seen calamitous adverse effects from the immunization. I've seen bad effects from the virus itself. So let's back away from dogma. This is not something that can be tweeted. This is not something that can be Instagrammed. There's a bastion of thoughtless opinion that is being petrified. I encourage you to back off of your pedestal of dogmatic thought, if in fact you're standing on it, and balance and consider the various aspects to this philosophical debate, and ultimately to back away from judgment of others, regardless of where they stand. Many people have acquired native infection and have antibodies against COVID. Should they be immunized? That's another question. The evidence doesn't support immunizing somebody with positive antibodies against COVID. There is very little research in this arena. It could possibly be negative in its impact. Typically, when you have antibodies against the virus, you're considered immune. That's standard medicine. We ought not to deviate from that impulsively because of fear. So once again, there becomes a moment of personal reflection. So folks, I'm a functional doc, and there's been a lot in the functional medicine community of people against immunizations. I consider it closer to functional medicine than drug therapy. It is a vehicle that allows your own immune system to better defend itself with the aid of stimulation. It's better than waiting to get sick and taking a drug. Other things to support immune function, briefly, we've got vitamin D. Look, just as the immunization has merit, vitamin D levels have been strongly correlated with decreased rate of infection. And if you're infected, decreased severity of that infection. I advocate for blood levels greater than 50 and less than 100. For most of you, you can't get there without a high quality supplement. You can't get there from drinking milk and sunshine exposure. I've done hundreds, if not thousands, of vitamin D levels on my patients, and it is rare to find somebody above 30, especially if you're carrying extra weight. There's an inverse correlation. People with a greater body mass, people with more obesity have lower vitamin D levels, and not surprisingly, a greater risk from COVID. So get on some vitamin D supplementation, in my practice, I advocate 5,000 units per day for the vast majority of people. It's worth consulting with your own doctor about that detail. Zinc also is a nutritional supplement that correlates with better immune function. It is one of the most common immunodeficiency con contributors to in immunodeficiency in society, and that is low zinc levels, especially if you're older or vegetarian. There is some zinc in non-animal foods, but it's just not that bioavailable. It doesn't absorb as well. 
So consider getting a zinc level your target. If it's below 60, below 60 microgram per deciliter, you're zinc deficient. You should do something about it. Well, with a couple of minutes I have left, I do want to share some thoughts about masking. Once again, let's back off of dogma. Masking is neither good nor bad. It just is a thing. And we need to consider risks versus benefit. And here we tie it into Botox. How so? In the world of psychological health, now we start to define science more broadly. Let's go beyond immunologic considerations and consider mental health, social health, psychosocial development. What happens to a child from age zero to five when the people they look at have masks on and they're not smiling at them? The answer, we don't know. It's an experiment. It's one that I, I have um, fear for. There's something called the reflective face theory. There was a study published, actually several, correlated patients who received Botox treatment to eliminate wrinkles had a lower rate of depression. In fact, the impact on depression was equivalent to that of Prozac in one study. What an interesting detail, however, is that the wrinkles that diminish depression are those between the eyebrows, those ominous 11s that people have as they get older. They make you look angry. They make you look tired. And when people look at an angry face, they reflect that mood back to them. That's the reflective face theory that when you have a happy face, everybody that looks at you smiles back. We know those people. They just look happy. They make us feel good. They're like a puppy. Now, I thought this theory was a little bit um, uncertain, but then another study looked at the the uh, crow's feet around the edges of the eyes. These are the little, little crow's feet at the outside of your eyes that when you smile, they crinkle up. When you treat crow's feet, it does not help your mood. And that makes sense because a smiling, crinkly face kind of looks sparkly and happy, you know, like Santa Claus. So the reflective face theory is relevant to our discussion because you walk down the street, you see nothing but these ominous mass people all day long. It gets you depressed. And if you're in good mental health, you tolerate it. And if you're not, maybe it's a breaking point. And if you're a child in school, maybe you become sullen and withdrawn. Maybe your grades sink. These factors, folks, need to be considered. To what benefit is it when we mask? Uncertain at best. There is no strong evidence that universal masking does anything. There's theoretical constructs. It seems harmless. It's not. Masking affects psychosocial well-being. It affects people differently. That effect is hard to quantify. We can't do a culture and count heads and say, oh, today, you know, another thousand people became depressed. It reminds me of that old cliche, when you can't measure what matters, you give matter to what you can measure. So we can do a culture, we can count infections, but we can't take the psychological temperature of people. I can tell you in my observation, I have seen the collapse of mental health in individuals and they have told me that it correlates with social isolation, the lockdown. I believe them. I think it's real. I think it's neglected. And we need to be very cautious about these masking mandates. They worry me more than the immunization. I'd say immunize everybody, mask nobody. Look, in the best of circumstances, in hospitals where we use these masks, we throw them away when we leave one room, we put a new one on, we go to the next. 
We don't wear them from room to room, floor to floor all day long. And oh, by the way, hang them up on a coat rack and put them on the next day. We do not do that. Why? Because it's not proven to be beneficial. And yet, somehow, this symbolic gesture has become dogma in many circles. No evidence of benefit, significant possibility of harm. This virus is too contagious to be contained with some half-assed mask, poorly worn and contaminated in the process. People touch them constantly. They put them below the nose. So let's just quit with the virtue signaling and the false value of this masking. It's ridiculous. Now, here's, here's the caveat. And once again, we back off dogma. Folks, if you're actively sick, put a damn mask on. If you're coughing, if you have a head cold, put one on. Why? Because it's been shown to help diminish your risk of propagating infection to others. It doesn't matter if it's COVID or just a head cold. It's courteous. You're hacking away, put it on. The argument that the virion is smaller than the, uh, than the break in the mask or the filtering mechanism in the mask is also misguided because most of these viruses cluster around mucus that can then be captured. So in summary, mask mandates are of known negative consequence. They can cause harm. They diminish the ease of learning in a classroom. They diminish social interactivity. They diminish positive facial reflection and psychological support. You want to feel good? Have somebody smile at you. Masking does harm immunization. Like I say, less harm than masking. So folks, this is an ongoing reflection. I encourage you to back off of the pedestal of dogma, back off of Twitter, back off of Instagram. If you really care about this, give it personal thought and weigh risk benefits and consider society at large when you reflect upon your own pathway. And yes, take your vitamin D and take your zinc. Now remember the things we talk about here are my opinions based upon my research and my own practice, review of literature and observation of society at large. I hope you've appreciated and have enjoyed this section and we'll be back again in the near future with more from the Intellectual Medicine Podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Steve Pederudi. I'm wishing you 120 youthful years. Till next time.